It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Are you guys still out there or have y'all just given up on investing altogether after the last two weeks we've had in the market? First of all, let me tell you, I'm going to keep this very concise too because I know many of you are in and outers, meaning you want to come in and get the financial chaos topic and then jump right out. So I won't waste too much time. But I went on vacation last week. Actually, I was down in Mexico all last week. And what do you think I felt like every day when I walked in the, the, the hotel room at the resort and saw that the market was down like one and a half to two percent, it seemed like a day. It was just dreadful. But we're back and I'm back um from vacation and you know, I'm not trying to make any market correlations here, but you could look and notice as soon as I'm back from vacation, we've had two good days on the market. But um, we won't go there completely. I haven't gotten my calls in to um, Bernanke or anybody else over at the Federal Reserve or at any of the stock exchanges. But it is June 15, 2006, and what we're going to talk about on the financial chaos topic today is the volatility of market cycles. Are you scared yet? And the reason I'm talking about this is because we have had such a crazy two weeks here on the market that I think a lot of you are probably looking looking for a little reassurance to know that your thought process and this whole investing thing is just right for you. Um, just to give you guys an outline, remember we've changed the format on the last show when we had Brandon Burner on. Now we're going to do the financial chaos topic first. Following that, we'll do some um, just general updates on what's going on with the podcast, some of our goals, things that are um, good things that have happened for us, and then last, we'll go wrap up with some um, subscriber email that we get that we receive. You know, where people ask for general questions, so you never know. It's kind of a potpourri of what we're going to be receiving. So as you can see, we got a show that's just chock full of information today. So let's jump right in to the financial chaos topic. If you do want to contact me. This is the one part of the show. I'm going to go ahead and give you this um, address now, and I'll give it to you later when we do the subscriber emails. But you can contact me at my email address. That's jbp at preston-cleveland.com. And um, if you want to just go back and read these show notes later, you can pull us up on the website. It's um, money guycom You can go out there and pull up our show notes. I know many of you are, are downloading us from iTunes, and I appreciate that. So jumping into the... Are you scared with these market cycles of the last two weeks? Let's talk about a few things. First, how much have we really given back? In the last two weeks, pretty much since the beginning of May, we've seen the EFI, which is the index that tracks the European, Asian, and other international stocks, give back about 12% of what they've made. Also, the Emerging Markets Index has given is off 20% since the the end of May, and then the S&P 500 has lost 6%. So you can see it has been kind of one of those times where you pull your hair and you go, "Oh my God, what have I done here?" But um, I'm here today to kind of make you feel a little bit better about your investment thought process and see if we can calm you down a little bit. Also, just another thing that scares me about what's going on is I heard this morning I was watching the Today Show and they were having like a money update, you know, where they come in, they bring an analyst in to tell you what's happened in the markets. And one of the things that, that I heard that really surprised me is they said that just this morning, that yes, last week, $9 billion, and that's, that's with a B, billion dollars, $9 billion was transferred from equity investment stocks over to money market funds just last week. So what does that mean? That means that you've got a lot of people who have gotten scared 
and decided they were going to jump off the stock investment bandwagon and they were going to jump over to cash because they were a little nervous about things. And when I hear things like this, reports, I start thinking about the investment lemmings. And you're like, well, what's a, what's a lemming? Well, let me tell you what that is. In the animal kingdom, they're a rodent that's best known for periodically mass migrations that occasionally end in drowning. I know you've heard that saying before where you'll have this, um, this, these group of lemming that will run over cliffs and run into to rivers and drown themselves. And that's a lot what's going on with the investment lemmings out there. Um, what they do is they act of, it's the act of following a crowd into an investment that will more than likely head for disaster. And that's what I'm going to try to keep you from doing. Remember, the secret to being a successful investor is you really have to think about things from a contrarian standpoint. That's how Warren Buffett, Omaha from Omaha, oh, I totally slaughtered that, the Oracle from Omaha, um, as well as Bill Gross, who's the biggest bond fund manager out there at PIMCO, that's how they have continued to, to stay ahead of the curve is they're always trying to be contrarians and do the opposite of what they think the broad market is doing. So... That's one of the things you just really need to think about is not being one of those investors that's going to react with your gut and do exactly what everybody else is going to do. So why am I telling you this? You're probably wondering, well, Brian, come on, the market's been beat up. We just came out of, we all still remember what happened from March of 2000 to really the end of um, around November of 2002. So why in the world would you tell us to grin and bear it and hang out for all that? I'm going to tell you guys the wisdom is the buy and hold approach to investing. And I know that sounds so boring, but there's a reason, as I've already mentioned, Warren Buffett has what's called the permanent portfolio, which is your portfolio. You go out and buy certain holdings, and you plan on pretty much holding them for, for an indefinite period of time unless you see something dramatic that causes you to sell them. But the buy and hold is where it's at. And I, I'm going to give you some stats. It talks about from 1985 to 2004, the average stock fund, meaning the S&P 500 and, and, and large cap investments, delivered an annual rate of return of 12.3%. Now, that's not too bad. Uh, but if you were the average investor, what did you yield during that exact same period of time? This kind of shows you how volatile an investor is just because of that emotional pull on their gut that they need to get out and, and you know protect their money while they can. And the average stock investor has actually only earned during that same period of time 3.7% annually. Did you hear that? That's like four times less than what the average, the actual index earned. You, if you do the gut investing where you buy high and sell low, you're going to be at 25% of what you'd be if you just bought and hold the original investments. Now you say, well, Brian, where'd you pull up these statistics from? This, all this data came from the quantitative analysis of investor behavior by Dalbar and Lipper published back in July of 2005. You can go pull up this stuff if you want to go check my numbers, but it's pretty evident that from 85 to 2004, if you'd have just bought and hold the S&P 500, you probably ended up around 12.3. If you'd have done the, the gut checking where you sold when you weren't supposed to and bought when you were all excited because your buddies at the party that you, the cocktail party you went to told you how great it was to invest right now, you'd probably ended up with that average 3.7%. Don't be that person. You're not going to be a very good long-term investor if you're constantly bobbing in and out of the investment marketplace. Well, there's a group of you out there that probably, you know, 
you pop your head and you go, whoa, wait a minute, maybe I am the one. I've seen the late night TV shows, the infomercials, that tell me it's a matter of buying their $29.99 tape or going to the $100 seminar that I can learn to beat the market by timing the market. All I need is some trend tracker. I can do it. There's so many of you probably sitting out there thinking that you are the one that is finally going to beat the market and be that great market timer. Now, let me ask you a question before I get into the actual numbers of this to tell you why this is insane to think you're that person. But haven't you guys thought when you watch those infomercials at night, if if some of these people can really come up, type, type in market timing in Google and you'll see all kind of things pop up. Haven't you thought these people that are promising you 100% returns, 1,000% returns, if they could really generate those type of rates of returns, why in the world are they pushing their product on a, a late night TV show or, or through these infomercials or trying to sell seminars? If I could generate a 1,000% rate of return end over end, meaning every year, I would keep it completely to myself, go out there and make a gazillion dollars, move to a tropical island, and you wouldn't hear from Brian the money guy ever again. That's the truth. Nobody would ever, ever do that. And that's the thing is nobody would give away if they really could come up with a plan that could do this. They would go out there and make a gazillion dollars, and you have never have heard of them. So that's why that's one of the things. It doesn't pass the sniff test. If you can go sniff this thing and realize, well, why are they giving me these goods? Maybe the only way they're making money off of this is me by sending them the $29.99 or going to the $100 seminar that they're doing down at the local Holiday Inn. These are the things you've got to think about and ask yourself, is this person really looking out for me? But just in case you're that person, you know, come down and you're going to be the perfect market timer. Let's talk about a few things. These numbers are a little bit different than that 1984 to, uh, 1985 to 2004 because I had to pull my, re my data and research from a different area. But let's say you were investing from April of 1984 through December of 2002. Remember, the market was bad from 2000, really March of 2000 to November of 2002. So I've included one of these bad market periods here. But if you were investing from April of 1984 through December of 2002, the S&P 500 produced an average annual return of 9.66%, approximately 10%. If you would have taken out those two bad years, meaning if you'd have taken out 2002 and 2001, that number would have actually been 15%. But we're going to stay with the conservative number because that's the way we are here on the money-guy.com um, podcast. We're going to be conservative and give you the tried and true numbers so you don't feel like I'm trying to bend this to get my point one way or the other. But... Let's say if we know that that number is 9.66% from 84 to December of 2002, you can think to yourself, and this is something that, you, that you've heard, is you've, you've heard people who are buy and hold proponents like myself, they'll say, well, wait a minute, you can't sell because if you miss some of the best days in the stock market, you would eat up your rate of return. And this is the way that type of argument is, is made. It says if you miss the 40 best days in the stock market, your 9.66% rate of return drops down to only 0.47%. You're like, whoa, why in the world would I ever sell if that's the case? And that's not really a fair argument to make. This line of, of thought is flawed because the majority of cases, large percentage of gainers were no more than 90 trading days away from the large percentage of losers. 
sometimes before, sometimes after. You know, there's really no way to know. So what that means is, is that a lot of times when you have these really big up days in the market, they either were right after or right before big loss in the market. So if that's the case, let's ask the next question on this line of thought. What happens instead of just missing the best days? What if we miss the actual worst days in the market? Because that's what we actually want to do. Being conservative investors, we're not so much worried about getting those huge days out there. We want to make sure we're not out there for those huge bear days that you know are going to take away and eat away at a lot of our investments. So if you took out the worst days in the market and missed the 40 worst days of the market, your return increased from 9.66% to 21.46%. That sounds pretty good. But if you notice, if you do the math, that's not too far off from the other side that I told you if you missed the best days, it took it down to 0.47%. So what's the more reasonable thing to consider here? You know, the, the, the analysis of taking out the worst day was just as flawed as the first analysis, meaning putting the best days, because it assumed that the advisor, or the investor, I should say, is smart enough to, to outsmart the market on all the worst days, but also be in the market on the best day. So you're out the worst and in the best. That doesn't seem too realistic either. So I think probably the compromise to this whole issue is to say, well, what's more likely is, is that you'd miss both the worst and best days if you played this thing perfectly. So if you took it and you missed the best and worst 40 days of the stock market, the S&P 500, your 9.66, which is the buy and hold rate of return, would increase up to 11.31%. So did you hear that? This is, this is how, how powerful this thing you call market timing is. So for doing all this buying and selling, this doesn't even take into account all the transaction costs of you buying and selling these things. And don't, don't even worry about the holding periods that now it's because of the, the mutual fund scandals we had back in 2004 that you're now required to hold most mutual funds and holdings for 90 days just so you don't have redemption periods. We're not even going to worry about that, the, the fees of all this. We're just going to talk about the complete theory of if you could do this, go in and out whenever you wanted to, and you were smart enough to to basically miss the best and worst days, the top 40 days and the worst 40 days, what would that do to your return? Take you from 9.66% to 11.31, only 1.65% of a premium. If you played this perfectly, that's only 1.65% if you do this just right. And as I've already told you, the research shows that most people don't do it perfectly. They don't do it the way they're supposed to where they make that additional 1.65%. Most people actually do the exact opposite and drive that 12% rate of return I talked to you about originally down to 3.7%. Do you, do you see how most people, when you get your emotions involved, you take out the analytic, analytical you know, conversation and, and discussion with this and go completely with the emotions, it doesn't work and you cut your return to about a quarter of what you would do if you just were a buy-and-hold type of investor. So you might ask yourself, because I've even seen some of these emails out there, where people will say, well, wait a minute, Brian. The 90s were outstanding. They were better than outstanding. We had markets that were doing things that we've never seen before. And it's just unfair and not right to tell people to expect that type of rate of return when we had this booming 90 period. So I started asking myself, that was a good question. I said, you know, what a great point, but let's let's talk about what's the probability of the market being up versus down. And I really, I did some, some Google search engine 
um, searches to see if I could try to find out how often the market's up versus being down, meaning that you look at the close of the market yesterday and um, the close today, and is it up versus down, and what's the big spread there? So I actually did that math. This is, you're going to get to see how much of a geek I really am because I went, let me tell you how I did this. So if any of you technology-type people, which I know there's many of you out here in the audience, um, if you want to go recreate what I did, all you have to do is go go to Yahoo's website, click on the Yahoo Finance link, which is in the upper left-hand corner, and on the Yahoo Finance, they have a historical price list. And you can go pull up the S&P 500 and then do a historical price list, really from January 3rd of 1950 all the way, and I did this as of June 13th, 2006. So you ask yourself, how many days were up versus down during that 56-year period? Or 55 and a half years, I should say. And what I found out is that the market is up 53% versus 47%. There are 7,476 days the market was up, 6,726 days that the market was down. I was like, that's interesting. So essentially, I've got a 3% house edge by being a buy and hold type investor. I know that I'm going to be up 3% more than down. So that's on the 55-year period. What about the last 30 years? So I did the math on the last 30 years. Of the last 30 years, 3,980 days were up, 3,593 days were down. If you do the math on that, that works out to be, once again, 53%, 47%. 53%, it's more likely to be up than it is to be down. I was like, wow, that's odd. It's the exact same number. But what happens if we do this for 20 years? So I did the math from 1986 to 2006. And there's 2,689 days that it was up, 2,356 days that it was down. You do the math on that when you total it up and divide it by the two numbers. It's 53% up, 47% down. This is unbelievable. The market is this consistent that it's consistently three percentage points in your favor to keep investing. The only thing that was different, I went ahead and broke it down. I went down to the last 10 years. I went from 1996 to 2006. And I found that there were 1,312 up days from that 10-year period and 1,204 down days. You do the math on that, and it was 52% up, 48% down. Still very similar, but it is a little different. But I was just in awe of how close, what a thin line that the market was in for the last 55 years, 30 years, 20 years, and 10 years. It was all within the same trading range. Now, the only thing I did throw out there that was pretty interesting, I wanted to see up days versus down days. And I will tell you, you know, percentage-wise, the last 10 years, the market has been down a greater percentage, meaning that the days it is down, it's down an average of 0.85% versus the days it's up, it's up. Eight point, I mean, 0.84%. So you ask yourself, well, what that hurts you is, is that the days it is down is usually a bigger bite out of your portfolio than the days it's up, which is not good. So um, that's just some interesting facts I found. But getting back to the whole thing here on the consistency, if you think about it, you have a 3% house edge. And when I talk about house edge, this is anybody who does gambling or, or plays sports of chance knows what I'm talking about here is if you go over to Vegas or any other um, establishment you see, especially Vegas, you think about it, you go to Las Vegas, they have these huge, huge, if you've never been to Las Vegas, they have these huge casinos, 
that are built off the backs of all the losses of the people who think they're going to come in and make millions of dollars. But we all know they're paying for these huge buildings that have all the palatial things you could ever want on these huge buildings. You know, they've got the the granite floors. They've got the nice wood trim throughout. It, it is completely over the top how palatial these places truly are. And, and what pays for all that is really the losses of all the, the gamblers that come there and give their money to these um, casinos. And I wanted to talk to you about what the house edge is, meaning what the house's chance is on a statistical basis of beating you, the gambler, is at, the, at a lot of these casinos. On six-deck blackjack, the house only has an edge of 0.60%. Remember, I told you we are already th- we got 3% house edge over the market being down. So you can see this is a superior bet for you to be an investor versus playing blackjack just on this part. Craps. Just playing the pass and come bets, which are probably the better plays on um, a craps table. The house only has a 1.41% edge. Still not as good as being a stock investor. And then roulette, with just a single zero, only has a house odd uh, edge of 2.7%. Getting a little bit closer to our three, but we're still superior with that 53% versus 47%. So the whole point here is I just want to talk to you about you've got to keep yourself focused on being an analytical investor with a contrarian mentality. And you ask yourself, well, why in the world would the average investor not make the 12.3%, only make the 3.7%? Let's talk about the actual market cycle. The market cycle has several emotional levels. If you've ever seen what what the market cycle looks like, it's it's a line that goes up, you know, and, and then as, as the market peaks out, it starts to come down. It builds a baseline bottom, and that's usually when people will do the worst things. They will sell, and then it comes right back up. Well, just like there's the whole cycle, and there's formal titles. I could give you the names of all the different cycles there, but let's talk about the emotional side. Most of us, when the market's going up, start off with a level of optimism. And then as it starts to go up, we get excited. Then there's even a thrill associated with it, and then we get to the top, the very pinnacle, the top of the, of the market cycle is that euphoria, which is typically the point of maximum financial risk. Because this is when you're going to cocktail parties, you're bragging about what a great investor you are, you're getting all your buddies all heated and hot about investing, and that's when most people usually jump on. Well, then things start to come down a little bit. You start to come down that market cycle and you got a little bit of anxiety, <laughs> you know, which is, um, which is just a temporary set for us long-term investors, but for others it can be um, then lead to denial. Next it gets fear. You notice these are getting intense, you know, a little more intense as we go down. Then desperation starts to kick in. As we continue down the cycle, we hit panic, and then we we eventually, what I call, we puke it up in the fact that we then sell at the world's worst time at the bottom. And this is the point of maximum financial opportunity. But most investors, remember, do the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. They actually will sell low and then buy high. And that's exactly what I'm trying to keep you from doing. And then when, even when you're at the bottom, when I've just told you you have the point of maximum financial opportunity, you still have feelings. Even when the market starts to recover, you have feelings of depression, hope, relief. And then you hit that, once again, that cycle of optimism, and the cycle starts all over again. So you can kind of see how they ride this out, and you can see how this plays exactly with what I just gave you the facts, all you the blocks you need. 
you think about it, we had two awful days on the market. We heard last week that $9 billion left this equity marketplace to go to money markets. Well, what has happened the last two days? We've had two big days on the stock market. I don't know how the days go closed today, but it looks like it's pretty good. I mean, the market was well over 100 points, I believe, earlier today. So you can see we're right on track to erase some of those awful days on the market with some up days here. But some people who sold out last week, they're part of that $9 billion, aren't going to see that. And I don't know what's going to happen, but just say, just for argument's sake, what if things got good again and we started having some positive information come out um, and the market recovered a little bit more? Those people who sold out last week and transferred that $9 billion, don't you think they're probably going to come right back into the market? And if they do, they have they have become the quintessential example of what I'm talking about because they sold low and now they're going to wait until the market recovers with some of those big percentage days and they're going to come by right back and they're going to buy high. And I just want to tell you, don't be that person because you're not going to be a good long-term investor if you do that. So I hope that helps out on understanding how the market cycles work. Control your emotions. That's probably one of the biggest things I had to learn becoming an institutional advisor and helping people manage their money is don't become emotional. You've got to think about things from a contrarian standpoint and be that guy that's willing to go in there and buy when you have that maximum opportunity and not just to be a doomsday person that's always concerned about how everything could possibly go wrong. Um, also, I want to talk to you. Let's move into we, we're finished with the financial chaos topic. I wanted to give a kudos out there to our to our podcast that we got mentioned. We got mentioned on the website of about dot com, and um, we got mentioned by Justin Pritchard. And Justin represents. He works with um, banking. He does your guide to banking and loans. And he wrote on here on his podcast spotlight, it says, One of my recent favorite podcasts is the MoneyGuy.com podcast. You can hear a friendly discussion on various personal finance topics and keep up to date with recent developments. Find out more about the Money Guy podcast and start listening. So, uh, you know, this is always exciting whenever we're mentioning any type of press out there because my biggest thing, if you remember, is I'm trying to break a 1,000 subscribers as of this morning, we were at 860 subscribers, so we're only about 140 off from reaching that huge goal of 1,000 subscribers. But you know, I'm going to be like everybody else. Once we break 1,000, I'm going to want even more. So please keep it up. I want to thank you guys. You subscribers are the biggest reason we've been able to grow. Um, please continue to tell your friends and family about the show. Email me if you have questions. You can do that at jbp at preston-cleveland.com. You can also... Um, go check us out to get show notes at money-guy.com. And please leave me some feedback out there at iTunes. I know a lot of people actually use a, that feedback to know whether or not we're a good podcast. And I'm um, always trying to do everything we can to keep us cutting edge. We do have a new website coming. We're just trying to work on nailing down when that actual website will be done. But there will be updates, and you're going to see. Because that's the one thing I think Heidi has done. Remember, she's my, my engineer here for the show. She's done a great job getting our sound quality up. That's the only thing I feel like we're missing in this cog of this great machine that we're building here is that we've got to get that website up. But let's talk about some subscriber emails. This is where I answer your questions and see what I can do to help out and restore order to your financial chaos out there. So this first one is from a military gentleman. I'm not going to give his name because um, I'm going to read a part of his email after, after I go over the question. But I am going to read a little bit of his email. It says, first of all, 
Let me start by thanking you for the service you're providing for free. I've been a subscriber now for a couple of weeks. I haven't made a comment on iTunes because they want my credit card info to create an account, and I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if I remember correctly, you felt that by doing this service to help others in the end, you would be helped as well. That is a philosophy that I try to follow in my life as well. I think it's you are, wait a minute, let me read. I think that as you progress with this show, the money that you have spent on all of your equipment and the time you've put into this venture will be rewarded greatly. Well, I appreciate that. And then it talks about, let's get to the actual question. It says, based upon information that you shared about fiduciary agreements in previous episodes, is it wrong of me to ask my friend, who's his broker, by the way, if he can sign one? My, by wrong, I guess I'm asking if it is tactless, etc. Also, since the funds that he has me invested in, and he, he mentioned several American funds, um, would, is he generating profit off of me? This account is where my Roth IRA is. My stepfather has suggested just letting him manage it until he switches out and then eventually going to a fee manager. Well, I will tell you, one of the, when I hear, I, I think I want to make sure I haven't given everybody the wrong idea on all things. Commission guys are not all bad. I don't want y'all to get that feeling. I just think that it's like most things in life. As you as you progress through and you build up enough assets, there is going to come a time where you do need to transition from that commission advisor to a fee-only advisor just because there's not as many conflicts of interest. And let's face it, it's cheaper because if you continue to pay high commissions on um, on several hundred thousand dollars, even millions of dollars, you can see it's much easier to pay a, a, a fee-only advisor than it is to continue to pay those ongoing commissions. But you all have to start somewhere. And I do think many of you hopefully can take my notes and understand my ideas and go do the do-it-yourself route while you are building up your assets. But there is going to be a portion of you that still might need to talk to a, uh, an advisor who's going to have to charge you a commission. And if, I, if you are going to pay a commission... I'm not, a, you know, it's not my favorite thing in the world, but if you are, I will tell you, of the commission funds out there, American Funds is one of the better fund companies out there. They have the Growth Fund of America, the Euro-Pacific Funds, I mean, the, the Bond Fund of America, I believe. Um, they, they've got a lot of, of great funds that have historically done very well among their peers. So I'm, I don't want you to get the wrong idea that just because you're with a commission guy that you're, you're working with a crook. It doesn't work that way. Um, it's just I think that you are going to get to the point where you grow your assets, and it's much better um, at that point to get that expertise from a fee-only planner. So um, don't just – American funds are actually pretty good investments. The other thing, part of his email, question number two, he says, I plan to invest 20% of my gross income every year. I don't know, know if you are aware or understand the thrift savings plans for military personnel, so I'll break down what I understand. Unlike the civilian sector, military personnel do not get any matching for this plan, the advantage being that it is pre-tax dollars. Well, he's asking here in this question. Next, he goes down and asks, um, my stepdad argues that since it is pre-tax money, I should do 10% and put the rest and max out my Roth. Given the information that you presented in earlier episodes relating to Susie Ormond's best time to invest, etc., what is the best policy here? And, and this is—I need to clarify this as well. If you invest in your employer's retirement account and you're not getting a matching contribution, by all means, if your income allows it, meaning you're below the thresholds of 150,000 for married couples and 90,000 for single individuals. Do the Roth IRA first. Remember, that money grows completely tax-free. 
whereas your 401ks, 403bs, and thrift savings plans, you, whenever you put that money in, you get a tax deduction, but when you pull that money out, you are going to have to pay income taxes on it when you're, you know, start pulling it out after 59 and a half. Roth IRAs are completely tax-free. You, you put that money in, you don't get a tax deduction, but you get completely tax-free growth, and that is tremendous. So I would recommend this gentleman to definitely fund the Roth IRAs and then come back if you have leftover money since you're doing 20% of your gross income and fund that thrift savings account to lower your income taxes. The third and last part of the question, he says, I'm looking to purchase a house when I get to, he names the fort that he's going to, you know, the, the base. And then as I have to move to other duty stations, rent out the house I have lived in and reinvest the equity uh, that I've built up towards the down payment in the next house. Well, he asked if that's a feasible idea. And I do think that, you know, being a landlord is a great opportunity. But I will tell you, I know most military people that I have in my family and I know as well move around a great deal. And the best landlords typically live pretty close to the houses that they rent. Um, and I'm not even talking about I'm talking about they actually live within probably 15 to 20 minutes of the houses that they rent because you got to think about it. When something goes wrong and there's maintenance issues, um, you've got to either have a, a, a handyman on standby that can run over there. Also, if you have a renter that doesn't pay their rent on time, you've got to go be able to go there and knock on the door and say, hey, where's my rent? You know, there's, there's constantly all kind of things. Plus, you need to be able to ride by from time to time just to make sure that your house hasn't been burned down or, or people haven't abandoned it and stolen all of your light fixtures. So be careful if you do want to play the, the part of the landlord that you have. First, access to a good handyman or your handy yourself. And then I would always want to probably be close to my rental property just because it's hard to keep up with everything if you live in a different community. Um, so I hope that helps out. I did want to, to pick on um, – the, the subscriber a little bit here because the last part says, if you read this on your podcast, please do not share my rank or my name as it would technically be an endorsement from an officer, and I don't think that I le- legally should do that. And um, I just this was probably the most respectful email I've ever received from anybody, and I'm just so happy to have people from the military listen to the show, and I do appreciate everything that you guys are doing for us. And um, thanks for the great comments, and hopefully some of this advice really helped out. Moving on to the next um, podcast email that we got was from Brad. And Brad says, um, I have a question covering your most recurrent podcast. I'm currently a 25-year-old individual maxing out my 401k contribution every month to receive my company's maximum match. My company just now started offering the same matching plan for a Roth 401k. Would you suggest, considering my age, that I stop contributing to the tra- traditional 401k and start contributing to the Roth 401k? Great, great question, Brad. I haven't even, I don't think I've brought up the Roth 401ks on the podcast. Maybe I've mentioned them once, but these are new products and there's not many employers doing this. So, Brad, you've got a great employer that's actually ahead of the curve on going ahead and bringing these things online. Um, definitely do the Roth 401k. You're only 25 years of age. Uh, and you've got an employee that's going to do a match into that fund as well, or you, you know, you, this would be a no-brainer. Go ahead and load up that Roth 401k and make use out of it. I think that you're very fortunate to have an employee that's even offering that. Um, the next email was, "Hello, Brian. It is great. You have a great podcast, especially the part about harvesting losses." I recently bought some funds for my mother, and it looks like I bought in at the top of the market. Could you please clarify the point on selling mutual funds, which lost value to identical funds? 
He says, I liken your example of the Spartan 500 index to the Vanguard 500 index. Well, what I'm talking about is because he, he then they, they then ask if this is talking about buying into um, different fund families or if it has to be completely different. Remember, what you're trying to avoid, you have to be careful. One thing that I didn't mention in the, in the podcast that I talked about harvesting losses is you don't want to be impacted by the wash rules. And what wash rules mean is that if you buy a fund and then lose money, you sell it for a loss, you're supposed to wait 30 days before you can buy that fund again. Otherwise, the loss is not recognizable. You have to roll it into the, your new purchase. So to avoid that, you do have to buy a different fund. So my example was I was just talking about how you could sell the Spartan 500 index, buy the Vanguard index 500, and you've essentially changed um, holdings, but you've been able to recognize the loss. It's just a creative way to do things. But you do. It doesn't matter if it's the same fund fund family as long as it's a recognizable, different investment instrument that you're using. I think you'll be in great shape. So um, consider looking at that, and that should help you out. Um, the next, I've got a follow-up email from Kevin. If you remember, we talked about Kevin on the last show. He's the one that had the um, employee stock purchase plan. And he was trying to figure out how to do Roth IRAs. Well, he's got that issue resolved, and I'm glad we could help him out with that, me and Brandon. But he also wanted to give me some clarification. I, we, Brandon and I were talking because the best home equity lines I have seen out there in the marketplace are prime minus a half. And when Kevin wrote us, he told us he had a prime minus three quarters. And we were just like, wow, that is amazing. Where This must be a teaser rate. Well, Kevin has written us back to give us some feedback, and he says, I wanted to pass along that the home equity line of credit information that you asked about. About eight months ago, I, I did just get a junk mail letter from Citibank with an offer for a low equity line of credit. As I followed up on the offer, the term was set at prime minus three quarters for eight years. Um, so you can see that maybe reading some of this junk mail actually pays off from time to time. I actually went on Citibank's website. Um, I didn't see anything with the prime minus three quarters, but this might be a promo deal they're offering for maybe existing customers or um, special things they're sending out to people in the mail. So pay attention. If you get something from Citibank, who knows, maybe you can hit one of these things. Sounds like it's a pretty good opportunity out there. But thanks, Kevin, for following up. But I hope this podcast has been very helpful for you guys. Remember, we've had some turbulence in the market recently. Hang in there. I know that is very not, you know, that doesn't comfort you too much while you're looking at your monthly account statements and you see this turbulence that's going on, the volatility with your monthly account values, especially after we've had such a good first quarter of 2006. But the, the numbers don't lie. Stick with it. Don't be an emotional investor. Be more of a, you know, a numbers driven type of investor where you're always thinking from a contrarian standpoint, and I think you'll be rewarded for being that long-term buy-and-hold type investor. Until next time, may God bless you with good wealth, good family, good friends, and, of course, good health. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.